hour as reflecting even your own words, our Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you for letting us fail when we try to live on our own so that we can be reminded that in you is our all in all and our everything. And we do need you every hour, every moment and every second of every hour. And now we need you to instruct us by the Spirit to teach us, to teach us about repentance, to teach us about what it means to desire to do your will, what it means to come clean about our sin and to work towards righteousness and obedience in our life. Thank you for giving us the examples, the instruction of your word. Help us to conform to it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm chapter 51, or Psalm 51, a psalm that many of us are familiar with. It is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of David, as are many of the psalms. This is his psalm of repentance. It's not the only repentance that's found in the Psalter. It's not the only psalm of contrition of David, but it is the one that stands out to us above all others because of its significance, both in its context and the clarity of what it teaches us about repentance. And repentance is a central truth to the Christian life. Repentance is central to the gospel, not only in its beginning, but in its the whole life of the gospel in a true believer is one marked by repentance. Now, some hold a doctrinal position that say that salvation and by faith and repentance are two separate things. In other words, that somebody can experience the saving grace of Christ by believing the facts of the gospel, by giving assent to it in their mind. And then repentance is a category that's separate, that's separate for a believer that they may or may not participate in. So somebody can be saved because in their mind they affirm the truths of the gospel, although repentance may never actually be evident in their life. The most extreme form of that uh, in, in uh, popular Christianity, believe it or not, but the most extreme form of that says that a person can even eventually in their life deny Christ and yet still be assured of salvation uh, because at some point they did believe that. So that is a position that some hold. Others would reject this. I hope most of us here would reject that. We certainly, as a church, in terms of our doctrinal statement and our understanding of Scripture, reject that position and we hold, as Scripture does, that repentance is part and parcel of the gospel message. That there is no faith where there is not repentance, and repentance is a necessary consequence of faith. But, even though we would hold that doctrinally, sometimes we live practically in a very different way. And by that, I, I mean this. That sometimes... We, even as those who hold to repentance as a necessary part of faith, we sometimes make the mistake, practically, of equating confession with repentance. Feeling sorry for sin before the Lord, going to the Lord and telling Him about it, being very moved emotionally because of our sorrow for that sin, and then coming out and saying something like, based on that experience, I've repented of my sin. I just spent some time repenting. And the answer to that is, no, you didn't. You just spent time confessing. You did not yet move on to full repentance. 
Repentance is not merely confessing sin or even feeling bad about sin. In fact, if that's what we equate with repentance, then it can in fact lead to self-deception in the battle with sin and can lead to frustration of repeating it over and over again. Confession of sin is only the acknowledgement of it. Repentance is the actual turning from it to obedience and to righteousness and to Christ. Repentance cannot be real without confession, and confession is not fully sincere unless it involves repentance. Confession, no matter how heartfelt, is not actually completed and is not actually shown to be fully embraced until it produces actual change in the life, the pursuit of change. The sincere desire to be cleansed, the sincere desire to fight against sin and to pursue righteousness. And this then, then, is the mark of a regenerate life, of somebody who has actually experienced the life-giving work of the Spirit. It doesn't merely mark the beginning of salvation, though it does that. Jesus and John the Baptist and the Apostle, even the first message of the New Covenant, all began with the word repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What must we do to be saved, they asked Peter. He said, you must repent. But it's not merely the beginning of spiritual life. Again, as I mentioned, it is the whole life of a genuine believer and of a regenerate heart. Because here's, here's the reality that we live in as Christians. And this is to introduce the words of David here. That when one is born again, when one experiences the reality of regeneration, that, that secret working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the elect that produces that effectual call wherein a sinner is called from darkness into light. They hear the gospel. They hear it with spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. They respond in faith. They respond in turning. And regeneration is that work of the Spirit that makes all of this come alive inside one who was previously spiritually dead. As we mentioned in 2 Corinthians 4, it is one who was blind to the glory of Christ who was made to see the glory of Christ by that creative power of God within the heart of a sinner. So somebody who is saved has new life. Paul describes them as a new creature. However, the reality is, is that even a regenerate believer, this side of heaven, is living within a yet fully redeemed experience of humanity. We don't have resurrected bodies. We're not yet in the full presence and glory of Christ, nor could we be without something new taking place. The death of this present experience of humanity to be raised to something new, a new body. And so the reality is is that even as believers who are regenerate, there is the presence of remaining sin within us. There's the presence of remaining sin, the principle of sin. And so it could be said, as it often has been, that if you are a believer, you are simultaneously righteous and unrighteous at the same time. You are simultaneously holy and unholy at the same time. You simultaneously love Christ and can sing that song that we sing. But if you're honest with yourself, all of us, we can also parallel with that going, but I don't love you all the time. I don't love you as I should. I don't live out the obedience of love as you want me to do. And that is because we simultaneously have a sincere love to Christ and want to honor him, but we also have remaining in us temptations in the reality of a certain kind of love for this world. 
and a love for those things that God does not love. So one person put it this way. But the believer who has died to sin's reign and dominion delights in God's law. The believer approves of it as holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7, 12. And then though he or she may struggle to obey it, we must distinguish between the activity of sin, which is true in all believers, and the dominion of sin, which is true of all unbelievers. So a believer struggles with sin, and unbeliever is completely given to sin. We succumb, this author goes on to say, we succumb to temptations either from our own evil desire, James 1.3, or from the world or the devil, Ephesians 2.1-3. However, for the believer, they say, our, and rightly so, our sin, if you are a believer, is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. And that's the experience of what it means to be a Christian. We sin, we behave foolishly, we act foolishly, we disobey the Lord, but the consequence of that sin isn't delight outside of that moment. It is, in fact, a burden. It is a misery. It is a weight that we bear. It is something that presses on our conscience. It presses on our joy. It robs us of everything that our soul delights in and that we truly want. For those of you who are a believer, you can compare that to your life as an unbeliever, whereas sin was quite pleasurable. And if you got away with it, you were more than happy very often. But a believer doesn't live in that world. It doesn't matter what others see or know about. It is the reality of sin in their own heart. That afflicts them. So sin is an ever-present reality in the believer who both falls at times to its deception, to the lies of the flesh, but is afflicted by it. And therefore the life of the believer is one whereby the Spirit we are continually seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Therefore the life of a believer is one of repentance, of continually striving after holiness even though we are often hindered by sin, as the writer of Hebrews said. Lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and how often we are entangled by it. Now, when we come to Psalm 51, then, the idea of repentance in a believer is laid out before us with incredible clarity. And King David gives us, by God's own design, a model of what this repentance looks like in the life of the believer. And it is a reminder that even the most godly of saints struggle with sin and fail. Even the most godly of saints. No one is immune to this. If you are a believer, again, to hear these words is incredibly instructive and it connects to the reality of our actual experience of walking with God. Now David, as we're familiar with, is not... Merely the king of Israel, there were many kings of Israel. He was the second, Saul was before him. But he remarkably is referred to in scripture, as you're well familiar with, when God said he was going to seek out a king, he said in 1 Samuel 13 that he will find a king, a man who is after his own heart. David was one in all of Israel-like kings who was held up head and shoulders above the rest as one who truly did love God. He truly did love God. He truly did delight in his real, in his presence. And I would make this point then, which is important uh, to my mind. Is it is the reality of David's love for God that is behind the repentance. 
It is because he loved God that he was so broken over his sin. It is because he loved God that he so longed to be restored to what he has lost. And that's how it is with a believer. Now, just as a brief introduction here, this isn't the only time, as I mentioned, that David describes his sin and the misery that it brought to him. This isn't the only time that David wrestled with his sin, as though it is held up as a significant time because of the events surrounding it. I'll mention those. But this is one of seven what are known in the Psalms as penitential psalms. Psalms that talk about and express a kind of wrestling with sin and a kind of burden of sin. But this one stands out, as I noted, and even at the beginning of the psalm, if you look in your Bible, for most of you, has an introduction, as uh, many of the psalms do, not all of them, and tells us the context of these words. We learn that this is a psalm that was penned by David as an expression of his repentance when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet after he had gone into Bathsheba. That is... Unfortunately, in the whole life of David, with all that was good and all that was accomplished by him, one of the most memorable realities of his life, that he sinned, and he sinned grievously. He sinned as the king of Israel. He sinned as one who was after God's own heart. He sinned as one who was given the great promise of God that his kingdom would never end. He would be significantly in the line of the Messiah. I won't rehash it. I think we're familiar enough with the story. But just to remind us that this is the time, this is when Nathan confronted him, was after David, after having received the promise of God, the covenant of God, the Davidic covenant that he would bring from his own line, from his own loins, a king that would reign forever. Not long after that, There is the record of David's sin. And David's sin was great indeed. He, after staying home from battle in a time of rest after many victories, noticed Bathsheba bathing on her roof. roof. He lusted for her. He went into her. He had committed adultery with her. And in trying to cover his sin, he killed her husband. He murdered, had him murdered sent him to the front line in battle where he knew that he would be killed, covering his tracks. It was a calculated, intentional plan to cover up his sin. And he seemingly got away with that for a while until God confronted him. Until God confronted him. Until God exposed what was before his eyes all along. And he says in 2 Samuel 12, after giving the parable in which David acknowledged his own guilt in principle, the parable of a rich man who took a poor man's lamb to feed to strangers, a picture of David taking Uriah's wife for his own lust when he was already rich with God's blessings. David said that man must die. And then Nathan famously said in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12, You are the man. You are the man. 
You are the one who has done this. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. And yet you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. He goes on with his punishment. And what was David's response? Verse 15. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I imagine as hard as that was for David, there was a measure of relief as well having lived under the burden of his conscience for so long, to have it now exposed was like a dagger to his heart. And yet, at the same time, in doing that, that dagger was excising a tumor, a cancer that had been growing within him. And though it was painful, he was, in one sense, taking the first steps towards freedom. And it would come through his repentance. So if you're looking, let's look at Psalm 51. And we could spend a lot of time here. I'm going to fight very hard not to do that. But to look at this as a way to prepare our hearts for the table and just to prepare our hearts to think through about the reality of repentance in our own life, we'll walk through this psalm, Psalm 51. And I want us to notice five elements of true repentance. Five elements of true repentance. Down the road, we'll have these up on the screen once we get all that worked out, but I'll... Uh, We don't have it yet, so I'll read them to you. They are this. And then, of course, I'll repeat them as we go through. One is we must know God's character and his covenant. Part of repentance is to know God's character and his covenant. Two, we must fully confess and own our own guilt. Third, we must plea for comprehensive restoration. Fourth, we must seek restored worship and service. And five, we must long to be a holy people. All of those are a part of true repentance. For time's sake, I'm not going to read the psalm all the way through. Well, actually, I will, and then we'll go back and pack it up. Let's just, let's just hear the word of the Lord. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, 
that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it, and you're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise by your favor. Do good to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Go back up to the first couple of verses and let's note this first aspect of repentance. That we must know God's character and God's covenant. David begins with these words, be gracious to me. That is his plea, be gracious to me. He qualifies it with the character of that grace, but his plea is, Be gracious to me, O God. When you feel the burden of your sin, when you feel the weight of your sin within you, there is one thing that you want from God, and that is grace. And that's the first thing that welled up to the front of his mind and of his affections and of his desires. He came before God and knew that there was one thing that he needed from God above all else, and that is grace. If you are a Christian, grace defines everything about your life. You stand in grace. You stand in grace. And behind that grace, encouraging him is again to know the character of God. What is the quality of this grace? What is the measure of this grace? He says, according to your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. He knew that the one he came to was the God of the covenant. Both of those appeals to God's character are aspects of God's stated purpose and attitude towards his his covenant people that he has acted toward them in loving kindness, and in his loving kindness and grace, he has compassion on them. He understood God as the sovereign, unfailing one who entered into covenant love with his chosen people. The very foundation of his his relationship with his people is love. He says, on you I have set my love above all of the nations. And in that love, he has compassion on his people, which is to say he is in that covenant a God of tenderness and sympathy for his people. Sympathy toward their suffering. Sympathy towards their difficulties. And even, and here is the marvel, sympathy towards their weakness against sin and their failures when brought low. He's compassionate with his people even in their own moral and spiritual weakness. This is striking to think In light of the depth of David's sin, in the light of our own sin, that the Holy Spirit inspired for us a psalm of repentance that begins with the loving kindness and the compassion of God. It doesn't begin with the judgment of God. There was certainly consequences to David's sin. We'll mention those later. But that's not where he begins. The consequences are natural. Of course there would be because he sinned. But what he begins with and what filled his heart and what motivated him and strengthened him to come to God about sin and what does in the life of a believer is the confidence that God is a gracious God. He receives sinners. He receives the guilty. He receives the ones who have broken his covenant. 
And we who live this side of the cross know even greater expressions of this love. David certainly knew God's love in terms of his being a part of the covenant people. God had set his love on them as a nation. God, David certainly knew God's love as the one who had been his shepherd and his caregiver all through life. He knew it through his fellowship that he had with him. He knew it through the many blessings that he gave to him, even raising him to the position of king and the way that he secured his kingship, the way that he gave him success. He certainly had known his forgiveness before. Certainly he knew his love. But even as great as that understanding of his covenant love is, it pales in comparison in the fullness of understanding as what we have in this room today to know that the very accomplishment of that love for his own would be the death of his own son. For God so loved the world, again, we hear that, he gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's absolutely staggering, I think, to us, it should be to us, and that feeling the weight of our own guilt and our own sin against God, it is to God we go to receive grace. We go to the offended party, expecting not when we come repentantly his censure, his rejection, but when we come to him repentantly, expecting him to act towards us in compassion. It's to his goodness we appeal. It's to his grace that we appeal. It is to his mercies and his compassion that we are led to come before him when we feel the burden of our sin. That's the conviction of the heart of a believer. And it is, in fact, the love of God that makes our conviction of sin and should so much the greater that we've sinned against one who is so compassionate and is so kind and is so good to us. And it is a deep experience of the need of grace. Because it takes grace for the one standing guilty before God realizes it's impossible to do anything about a very real guilt that we bear when we sin. Grace, as you have often heard, is sometimes described as God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. And, and that's true. I think, again, as I've mentioned many times before, a helpful way is to say it's God's goodness to those who deserve wrath. David deserved death. David deserved punishment. But what he is appealing to and what he is resting in is grace. Grace. So the first part of repentance is to realize that God receives us when we come truly, truly acknowledging our sin. Secondly... We must fully then confess and own our guilt before God. Verses 3 through 6. David says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He knew exactly what he had done. But what I want you to notice is this. David did not try to hide his sin, but he fully acknowledged it for what it was. This is a key point. Let me give you at least, I'm not going to overburden you with lists, but... There are at least five, five parts to this. I want you to just notice this. And think of it as a list. Think of it as together elements that fill the heart of a truly repentant believer. One is this. It is when we come to God with our sin, first we accept personal responsibility for God and call it what God calls it. Notice the language that he uses here. My transgressions. 
my sin. I've done what is evil in your sight. Later, he'll say blood guiltiness. He talks about his iniquity. This is so important for us to understand. He in no way hides the reality or tries to minimize the reality of his sin. He calls it exactly what God calls it. It was evil. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't merely a lapse. It was evil. It was sin. It was transgression. It was an infraction of your law. It was disobedience. Freedom and forgiveness will never come to us by relabeling or minimizing the reality of our sin. We must fully own our actions and the motivation for those actions for what they are if we are ever to know the reality of God's grace for them. We must call sin what God calls sin, evil, wickedness, rebellion, iniquity, and own it as such. This is a key problem with a psychologized church that relabels sin mistakes, sickness, illness, addictions. A passive idea, that's something that happens to us. God never calls it that. God calls it what David calls it, evil and sin. And the problem with that is this, is that if we don't call it what it is, then we can't know forgiveness for it. The great depth of humbling is when we acknowledge our sin for what it is, but the great reality is that that is exactly what grace is about. Forgiveness of sin. Not forgiveness of a disease, not forgiveness of a mistake, not forgiveness of an illness, not forgiveness of those type of things, he forgives us for sin. And that's the problem too often with Christian counselors or going to that kind of thing. They're not calling it sin. Guess what? God's grace has nothing to offer them. But for the sinner, for the one who acknowledges and owns their sin, God offers a marvelous, infinite, boundless mercy of forgiveness. And restoration. And sometimes we're almost embarrassed to call our sin what it is before God. And have you ever done this? Caught yourself even in confessing sin before God and almost trying to minimize it before Him? Or confessing so far and going, oh, I'll confess this, but I don't really want to confess this other thing that I know is truly an intention and motive of my heart. But I'm going to keep that tucked away and confess at this level. Can't do that. When we confess our sin, we must confess our sin to its fullest possible extent. We must acknowledge it before God with all the clarity and specificity that our conscience will allow us to do. That we're able to discern our own wickedness and our own motives. We must confess it fully before God. David withheld nothing, and we must not. Secondly, and we must grasp this. Verse 4. That our sin is first and primarily against God. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This does not mean that other people are not severely wronged or affected by a sin. It does mean that before and behind any wrong that we do to another person, even in his case of adultery and murder, what's even behind that is a heart that has rebelled against God. And so God is the one foremost that our sin is against. And in fact, if we don't fully understand that, we won't really start to grapple with our sin. Our sin, if we don't understand it first as disobedience to God, will ha it'll have a minimizing effect on it. 
because it's far less convicting and it's far less humbling and it's far less, uh, well, humbling to us if our sin is just being unkind to another person or stealing from another person or even committing murder for that matter. What brings the weight to sin is when we realize that it is against an infinitely holy God. And we can even see that our sin is, can be minimized, if we don't get this point, by even what we identify as sin. When we recognize that our sin is against God and it's a whole person reality, we realize this, this includes our thoughts, this includes our intentions, this includes our motives. And what often is un- imperceptible to other people in our sin is fully aware, is fully plain before God. And so we live in the light of God and realize that our inner and our outer life is always in his presence. And when we sin, even though it involves other people and there's an appropriateness at times to go to someone else, Matthew 18 and the rest of scripture, if somebody comes to you and you know, seeks your forgiveness, you forgive them. But it is to realize that first and foremost, it is against God. Before we ever go to another seeking forgiveness, we should have first gone to God. It's God who forbids, in this case, adultery, murder, and sin. So to do any of those things, any infraction of his law, is in fact sin against God. One said this, Spurgeon actually, commenting on this verse. All his wrongdoings centered and culminated and came to a climax at the foot of the divine throne. To injure our fellow men is sin, mainly because in so doing we violate the law of God. The penitent heart was so filled with a sense of the wrong done to the Lord himself that all the confession was swallowed up in a broken-hearted acknowledgement of offense against him. And so when we repent, we realize that first and foremost, the one we've offended is God himself. And we fully own that offense in all of its detail. Third, we must take full ownership of the consequences of our sin. Look what he says next. He says at the end of verse 4, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And I think this actually is one of the truest expressions of repentance. This is one of the truest expressions of the reality and the sincerity of our confession and our repentance. It is to take ownership of the consequences. And in this statement... David, as are all the righteous, is jealous to take full ownership of sin and absolve God from any accusation of wrong. Any accusation of wrong. David fully owned his sin when he was confronted by it. He owned his responsibility. He owned the consequences of it. To confess our sin, to acknowledge our guilt before God, to speak of how wrong we are and how sorry we are, but then complain or chafe against the discipline of the Lord and the consequences that come from it only expose insincerity. When we suffer the consequences of our sin, a truly repentant heart will own them and say, I'm getting, yes, what I've deserved. As a matter of fact, we can even say, I thank you, God, at times for letting me bear the consequences so that I can be more thoroughly humbled by it and kept from it again. Now, David's whole experience after this changed in terms of God's providences in his life. He knew nothing but 
trouble and hardship in his family, exactly what God said would come. He says, I'll raise up within your own house division and conflict. I'll raise up evil from, against you from your own household, he said. And he'll do it publicly and so forth. But listen to David's attitude. I just want to get there I, this, because this is so helpful. Part of that was David eventually, one part of it, was having to leave Jerusalem because part of that uh, conflict within his own home was Absalom, who, through a series of events, but usurped his throne in Jerusalem. And, and Absalom went up to the throne of his father, having convinced and manipulated the hearts of the people. David was shamefully with a small group of men, leaving Jerusalem, led out of Jerusalem, humbled and ashamed. And as he's going out in 2 Samuel 16, listen to this. It says, When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of the King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shammai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil. You are a man of bloodshed. And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. King said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And then he later says, Perhaps, well, he says, Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life, and how much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. And perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. That's true repentance. That's true humility. David was experiencing this. Experiencing the shame of it, never once did he blame God. Never once did he wallow in self-pity about woe is me, about what came from it. Never once did he complain about some kind of unfairness. Never once did he try to take vengeance of his own. He accepted fully and completely whatever the consequences of his sin were. And if there was going to be any kind of restoration from it, it was going to come from the hands of God and not his own in defense of his self. And so when we feel the burden of our sin and even the consequences of it, we should realize and keep before us that the evidence of our truly wanting to be rid of that sin and feeling sorry before God is to embrace the consequences. God so often, even in that, though, spares us from the full consequence. Even David himself should have been put to death for those sins. Others would have been. God had mercy to him. God so often does spare us from consequences, and even what he gives so often are so much less than our sin deserves. But what he does choose to give, and when he does choose to let us be disciplined for our sin and to bear consequences, we should fully embrace them as part of the repentance process and as part of the reality of repentance. So we must take full ownership of our sin, the consequences of our sin, and not complain. Four. We must grasp the comprehensive reality of our sinfulness. Look at what else he says. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This does not mean that David's mother conceived him in a sinful act of immorality. He was one of at least seven brothers from her same husband, mentioned in 1 Samuel 16. It wasn't prostitution or adultery or some immoral act of fornication. That's not what he's talking about here. It does mean this, that David understood and acknowledged that when he sinned, he acted from his own corrupt nature out of his own inherent fallenness. His sin was completely, totally, wholly his own out of the corruptness that remained in his own nature. This is one of the most clear, direct statements, in fact, of original sin in all of Scripture. Original sin refers to that first sin of Adam from which flows a whole race of humanity that is corrupted by its effects and under its guilt. That's original sin. To mention it here in his, in his repentance is to reflect his admission and his understanding of the full responsibility he bears for his own iniquity. It is a reflection and an admission of the depth and the full extent of his own sin and corruption. He says, it infects my entire being. It's been with me since the very day I was conceived in the womb. It has been my companion forever. When I sin, it is because I am so deeply of myself corrupted. The principle of sin remains within me. It's not merely an acknowledgement of sin, but sin that flows from a much deeper corruption within his heart. This again is, is just showing the fullness of his acceptance of responsibility. The fullness of his understanding that he stands as one before God who is in complete need of grace. Of grace and forgiveness. Five for time's sake, let me get here. A fifth element. It was we must sincerely desire integrity and not to sin again. And this is huge. Look at verse 6 and we're going we're gonna to end up having to stop here. But look at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. And this corresponds to what he just said. He just said that when I sinned, it's because it's something that flows from deep within me. There is a corruptness to my nature and to my experience in which sin is a part of it. That makes me realize the fullness of my guilt and the fullness of my need of God's grace. And God to sovereignly do a work within me of cleansing. And that's what he turns to. This corruption, he says, is something within my own soul. It's something within my own nature. And the believer understands that. We are new creatures. It's not the truest part of who we are. It's not the deepest part of who we are. The deepest part wants to, for a regenerate believer, to love Christ. But we do acknowledge that there is yet a corruption that is fully and completely ours, that we own for ourselves, that is a source of our sin, and that we need freedom from. And it's not a freedom that we can bring ourselves. And that's why he asked for this from God. He asked this from God. 
he acknowledges that the place in which God's grace is most evident and needed against the corruption of his own soul is in the deepest part of his innermost being. You desire truth in the innermost being. And this is essentially this. Integrity before God. Complete honesty before him. In terms of his, our confession, it means there is no half-hearted confession. It isn't confession to a point. It isn't confession at some point where we stop to lessen it again. It is a complete and full confession in light of the truth of God's word and who he is. There's no cherished element of sin tucked away in the hidden crevice of our hearts. But we are willing to acknowledge it completely. That's, that shows sincere repentance, a desire for repentance. It's to bring our sin in the clear light of truth and to expose the whole of the inner man. And we're asking God to shine on and guide every motive and thought to be honest before him. You desire truth in the innermost being. There is no deception. There is no hiddenness that can make its way with you. One old commentator put it like this, equivalent to a hearty, sincere obedience is not only actions, but of the very thoughts and affections to God. And so this denotes the purity of heart, the not admitting any unclean desire or thought, the very first degree of indulgence to any lust. And this God is said to will or desire or delight in and so command and require of us. What he's saying there is he's saying that God desires the kind of truth and the kind of integrity and the kind of commitment within the truly repentant heart that says, I commit myself to not allow even the beginning of sin, the first letting out of sin within me. I want to walk with complete integrity and complete truth. And in doing so, he says, in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Wisdom is that ability to skillfully apply and understand truth. To know the best course of action. But really there's something behind what David's saying here. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. There is an element of that wisdom in which David is saying this. And that the repentant heart says. In there as I confess my sin. As I seek to walk in conformity with your truth. As I seek to walk with integrity. There is a wisdom that I gain in the battle with sin. A certain knowledge of the corruption of my own hearts. A certain skill in applying your truth. And not following down that path again. But there is also this. You will make me know a wisdom that has come to embrace and experience. Consistently or more consistently. The fear of you in my heart. Ultimately when we sin. It is because we do not fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we act foolishly, and this would be a part of our confession, it is fundamentally because we lack a fear of God in that moment. When we sin, we are in that moment denying His glory, denying His presence, denying His holiness, and wanting no Part in it. There is no fear in our hearts before him. And David's saying, I want to know and what we plead for in that hidden part, the kind of fear of you out of which wisdom flows that will increase my ability not to sin. 
and to walk in the path of righteousness. That we'll learn from this the bitterness of what it means to not reverence you. That we'll learn from this the deceptions of my own flesh. That we'll learn from this my need for divine grace in every moment. Lord, I need you every hour. This is the wisdom that we long for. Lord, help me not merely to be forgiven, is the idea. Not merely to be cleansed and absolved from my guilt, but teach me how to walk before you with integrity, is the idea. And with wisdom, Lord, help me to not sin again. Help me to learn how to battle sin. Help me to not give in to the deceptions of my own heart. Help me not to fall prey again to these things that led to my disobedience. That's the prayer of the repentant heart. It's not merely that we want forgiveness for what we have done. We want help to not do it again and to walk before God with integrity and with wholeness of heart and in holiness of heart. In light of the new covenant and the appearing of Christ, this is is bound up as well for us in understanding the grace that God has shown us in Christ. We'll come to that next week. But in this way, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Are hidden the display of God's own wisdom, but also in Christ, in his life, in his accomplishment on our behalf, in his instruction and in his word, as he told us to abide this morning in John 15. In meditating on Christ, in knowing Christ, in fearing God because of the love of God he's shown us in Christ. As a matter of fact, just to remind you, that's precisely what he said in 1 Peter when he went there. You address him as father who impartially judges each man. Conduct your time in fear, yourselves in fear, and your time to stay on earth. Why? Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. And when we have that fear, we'll have a wisdom when we learn afresh how easily we can fall prey to our sin. And God gives us this pruning work that points us again to his saving grace in Christ. We learn wisdom, we seek wisdom, and we ask God to help us not to fall again and to live in the fear of him. And so repentance really then begins with understanding that God is a gracious God. He has provided salvation. When we come to him, we can come to him in the fullness and the freedom of confession because we know that that sin, for those who trust in him, has been atoned for completely. That there is forgiveness. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. We come to him withholding nothing in full acknowledgement of our sin. We don't call it something else. We come to him acknowledging that the corruption is fully our own. And we come to him in that sin, seeking from him the wisdom and the integrity to not fall into it again. To do more wise battle against him. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come, well, there's a variety of truths that are on the front of our mind, but we come at the foundation of them is to remember That the reason we are not condemned, the reason we are not condemned with the world is because of the body and the blood of Christ given for us. We celebrate that we have been called out 
from darkness into his kingdom, that we have his life flowing in us if we know Christ. We come knowing each of us that we have sinned and when we have gone to him with our sin, we have received forgiveness. We have been reminded afresh of the completeness of his payment on our behalf, of his resurrection on our behalf. We come with the joy of knowing his promise and assurance that our sins have been atoned for. And we come in hope of his return where we'll never sin again. And so it's not that we come to this table as a perfect people, but we come to this table as a repentant people, trusting in the grace of Christ. So as you prepare your heart, prepare your heart with thanksgiving, prepare your heart to make sure you know him in truth, that you are a repenter. And if there's sin that needs to be dealt with, now is the time to take that before him as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiveness that you've provided a savior. You provided for the old covenant saint the testimony of your covenant love. You provided for them the testimony that you made a way for them to come into your presence through the endless spilling of the blood of the sacrificed animals, through the priest, through the sprinkling of the blood in the holy place and the most holy place on the Ark of the Covenant. But even David didn't know in fullness. Even he didn't know that marvelous display of grace and the fulfillment of all those things pictured in the Old Covenant law, in the ceremonial law. And that is that your own son would fulfill it. And that you, Christ, would suffer on the cross for our sin. That you would come bound to human flesh on our behalf and that you would bear the shame that we deserve to give us a kingdom, to give us your kingdom that we don't deserve. Help us to remember these things and to delight and commit to live holy. And where there is sin in our life, show it to us, shine it on us. And where we are struggling, help us to be recommitted in our desire to live pure and holy, not mostly holy, but completely holy in every way before you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.